Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and Nick are back with a new episode with a special guest, Sunday Seafried, founder and CEO of Safe Harbor Financial, a leading provider of reliable banking and financing solutions to the cannabis industry. Safe Harbor is one of the first financial services providers to give access to reliable banking solutions for cannabis, hemp, CBD, and ancillary operators, making communities safer, driving growth in local economies, and fostering long-term partnerships. In this episode, Ann and Nick speak with Sunday about what makes Safe Harbor unique among cannabis lenders, some of the biggest banking and financing challenges facing the operators in the space, the status of current cannabis reform bills like the Safe Banking Act, and some of the banking horror stories Sunday's heard since jumping into the space. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Sunday Seafried of Safe Harbor Financial. Today, we're joined by Sunday Seafried, is the CEO of Safe Harbor Financial. Um, Sunday, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Before we get into um, Safe Harbor Financial and everything you guys are doing over there, we'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. You know, what is your path that brought you to the cannabis industry? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate the attention and certainly the um, exposure of, uh, for, for Safe Harbor. It's an interesting story because really in 2014, I was headed out to retirement. Really? I, truly. My I'm husband sorry. Was, that just like. Really. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, we both had contracts <laughs> as CEOs and um, we were both it just happened. They were ending at the same time, November 2014. And so we were just going to retire at the same time. And and all of a sudden. I had an old friend come to me who's a lawyer was and, and he had drinks with me and he said, you know, why is it you credit unions and banks won't bank the industry? And I just like, <laughs> yeah, not a conversation I want to have. And, you know, I'll go right to the regulators and I'm pretty sure the regulators will just shake their head. No, because it's such a difficult situation. Nobody was banking it at that point, hardly. And so I said, but, you know, for an old friend, I'll go take a look at that. Well, I, when I went into the regulator's office and I figured I'm going to get a closed door, go back to my friend and say, I tried. Right. But the fact of the matter was the regulator gave me a stack of papers and said, go forth. And I said, no, that's <laughs> I the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing about, you know, the retirement phase I was in, um, because the prosecution risk is there for officers and directors you know, nobody wanted in a CEO position to have to worry about their benefits or their job or getting terminated. Right. But I was already on my way out the door. My benefits were already paid. It wasn't going to harm me anyway. So I was in a really good position to take that risk. But so I'll tell you, then I what really sealed the deal was when I um, 
met the industry people and I actually sat down and listened to stories and there were two things that happened. These were some young fellows and they had little children. And in the middle of the night, they were telling me how they deposited their cash to ATMs. They would go to three different ATMs and they would have their kids in the back seat in their in their car seats, right? Bundled up while they're doing this in the middle of the night because they have to be inconspicuous. So that was the first thing I'm like, wow, this is horrible for families. And these are family businesses. And that's what I really learned. And, and the second thing was, he asked me, why do we have to make deposits less than $9,000. And that's a bank secrecy issue. And I said, how do you even know that threshold? And he said, because the banker told me if I wanted to keep my account open to make sure I didn't make deposits over $9,000. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we are teaching them how to be criminals in the banking world. And I said, I'm not going to be that banker. I, I, I'm not going to be the one who makes you be a criminal. You're already in an illegal market. You're trying to legalize it, legitimize it. And here we are teaching you how to be criminal bankers. So that was what really sealed the deal. But, but the safety was the first thing. I, I mean, <laughs> and we'll talk about Safe Harbor, you know, and, and what you guys are doing in a moment. But, you know, you talk about, you know, these bags of cash and, um, you know, there, there is a real safety issue there. I mean, we've had clients whose, you know, accounts have been terminated and a million dollars ends up on their door. Like, you know, are there any other kind of stories like that that you've heard that you're just like from your like previous life, you know, that you just made your hair stand on end? Well, I think the one thing that really sold the board was you know how they were paying their bills, right? And they would go into the grocery store with backpacks. So suddenly we all became very aware that they were going into the same grocery store as we were going in. They were going to the money service counter and they were buying money orders to pay for their, their electric or their phone or whatever rent. And they were just doing this in tens of thousands of dollars. And here are all our family members and all of our members. So that was probably the, the, the one thing that really engaged the board in the conversation. The other story, and I, I sat through, I onboarded clients for the first two years myself because I had to learn the industry and I had to write the program. And so I heard a lot of stories, but one that I always go back and remember is a mother who had a two-year-old daughter and she was delivering product and picking up cash at the same time with her daughter in the car. And she just remembered she was in a you know questionable part of town. She said, I just got in the car and I just burst out crying. And you just, you can't forget those stories, right? Because they have no other way to do it or they didn't have any other way to do it until we started banking them. But those are the stories that really solidified, no matter how hard we have to work, we're going to get this done so they have reliable banking. I think that is so powerful. Oh my gosh, like what a what an entrance into this space. It's like, like it doesn't sound like you had really been following the, you know, legislation or anything before that. And then you know, your first two years, you're, you're hearing all, all these horror stories. My gosh, like, I, I, I'm blown away. Well, you know, um, the other thing is we come from a credit union background. And credit unions are we're, we're owned by our members. We're cooperative. So here we're, we're looking at the membership and our members are all in harm's way and we should be doing things to further our membership's interest. And so looking at this, we didn't look at it as a gold mine. It was a profitable program, has been profitable for seven the last seven years. But the fact of the matter is the board told me right away, they said, we don't care if you make a profit year one. We only care that you do it right and you can stay in business and provide reliability in banking services. 
Okay. So take us back to, to what exactly is safe Harbor? I know we know we talked about kind of your, your background and, and your appetite to basically take this risk at this stage in your career. Um, so tell us what is safe Harbor? Well, it started out in January, 2015, after we did about six months worth of research conversations and, you know, everything we needed to do go through the federal insurers, the regulators, everything like that. But we actually started out with the DBA under Partner Colorado Credit Union, which was called Safe Harbor Private Banking. And that was a risk mitigating strategy for me because I figured there were a lot of people crashing and burning trying to bank the industry. And I'm like, well, if we crash and burn, they won't know it as Partner Colorado. They'll see Safe Harbor, right? <laughs> and the funny thing is, that years later, nobody knew I was running Partner Colorado. They just simply thought I was running Safe Harbor because the brand became so much stronger. But um, we just we actually opened a specific division under this DBA and all they did was learn the business and bank the business. It was so uh, specific and so detailed and so specialized that it was really important to, to train people just to do this. And that's when we created Safe Harbor in the beginning. And, and we started with 10 test clients and now we're nearly 600 and we've processed over $11 billion of cannabis-related funds in the last seven years. That's incredible. And you guys are working with all sorts of companies uh, uh, across the, the, the supply chain, yeah, I guess? Yeah, so that's interesting, too, because... I would say that jumping in, we were only a $300 million financial institution at that point in time. And my assumption was it was going to be all mom and pop shops, right? Just single dispensary <laughs> owners. And, and the first one walks in the door and there's 10 dispensaries, three cultivations, all under you know one owner and, and one group of owners. Second one walks in and there's 13, brand, 13 dispensaries, four cultivation centers. So a lot of what was coming in Colorado, they were vertically, vertically integrated, but they still separated their businesses. So by the time the third one walked in and I had like 25 different businesses under one set of owners, I, I really did spend about 26 hours on my computer that weekend designing some kind of sustainable program because it wasn't the mom and pop I expected. The good news was that I designed it in a very complicated way for the bigger shops. So when mom and pops showed up, they were much easier for us. So yes, the whole gamut, you know, and the interesting thing about that too is we continue to see new licenses, new types of licenses, whether they're social clubs or, you know, distributors, that type of thing. So the industry continues to emerge and so do we have to emerge with it. I guess, you know, Back when Arizona first was going medical, my dad and I um, were were looking around and trying to find like a, a banking partner to help us when we were trying to apply for a medical license. We ended up finding a credit union out here, um, but it, it I think it's it's just so interesting all the the hoops that you know people that have these licenses or want to get into this business have to do just to get this basic feature um, to participate in the industry. What does Safe Harbor do and why are you guys appealing versus, you know, your competitors? What makes you like that unique value that you're going to bring to, you know, to your customers and partners? I would say first and foremost is the reliability factor. We're in our eighth year, right? 
you will see banks jumping into this now or credit unions jumping into this, but the reliability factor isn't there. The reputation that we have provided continuity in banking for now in our eighth year is very important because you can jump into a program and you can create a program, but the fact is you have to get through examination. So we're actually seeing other financial institutions get hit with uh, formal orders from the regulators at this point in time, and they've been doing it for a couple of years, but the BSA obligation and the documentation you have to keep up with is so complicated that it becomes a burden to that financial institution. We've gone through 16 federal and state examinations. That doesn't mean the regulators approve everything because BSA, again, is a moving target. And every time we change, we have to improve our systems within every year they come in. But it does say that we were doing it sufficiently to pass examination successfully. I imagine that's got to bode well for the long term outlook. You know, like you just said, other credit unions and banks are going to get involved in this. Eventually, you know, uh, the laws are going to change that are going to make banking a little bit easier and you're going to start seeing, you know, bigger players enter the space. But does that experience, is that what you're banking on in the long term here um, for, I, I guess, maintaining as the industry continues to grow? Well, the, we have this foundation we've built, right? Seven years of practice now in our eighth year, seven years of a foundation doing it right. The systems are in place. We've created this national footprint that allows us to expand. It took a good two years to understand the industry. And we were afforded the opportunity for, from the industry participants to actually come on site and learn the business, right? They wanted us to succeed. So they gave us the benefit of all that education. We still took a long time to stand a program up. So the, the financial institutions going into it now, they're going to take six months to a year and a half to stand a program up, and then they have to go through examination. What we're going to do is take that foundation and bolt on other services, whether we're going to create them in-house with the capital or whether we're going to bolt them on with a merger and acquisition strategy. We want to take the best of the best and build a one-stop. There are a lot of single service providers out there that are very successful. But I think what we're going to see our financial services start to consolidate and build these types of platforms that give all the services under one roof to cannabis businesses. I can remember, um, you know, years ago, so probably 2016, 17, um, you know, being in this industry and talking to reporters and especially talking to, to business financial reporters who are just kind of like waking up to this industry and being like, these companies are going public, you know. Um, and some reporters would ask like about banking and it was such a, a hush hush thing. Like we had clients be like, I am not willing to say my banker's name out loud. <laughs> you know, I, I, I am so they, they have said they don't want me to say it out loud. They, you know, so, so can you talk about the change? Like, not only are you saying it out loud, you've hired a PR firm, you've gone public via a SPAC, which we'll talk about in a moment, but I mean, in this short, well, it seems like long, but in this short amount of time, we've gone from like the hush hush, like, you know, executives, like, you know, whispering who their bankers are to their friends to be like, you can maybe get here, you can make, but then once, you know, once more people knew about it, that, that, that institution is like, we're not taking on any more cannabis clients. So can you just talk about that crazy evolution of like, we don't talk about it. And now we are, we are talking about it. Well, first of all, if you go back to that first risk I said, which is the crash and burn risk, right? Yeah. I know 
really not what we should be calling it, but you know, it, was, it was my fear and a, a little you know, good fear is good to have going into something new and risky. Right. So in the beginning, if we had advertised and done anything other than refer in member by member, um, we would have had a line out the door in Colorado and we couldn't, we couldn't do that. The regulators would not want us to do anything fast. And so we had set a limitation. So we're not opening more than five accounts a month. And we had hundreds of accounts that we could possibly open. So that's one reason they keep it very quiet. Here's another story that will give you an idea of why else. We had a courier and they were carrying our money throughout cannabis and they were stored in their vault. And all of a sudden they had banks who said, we know you're carrying cannabis cash. And if you're going to mix that cannabis cash with our cash, legitimate cash, we're going to end services with you, right? So there's another reason people stay very quiet or did stay very quiet. We made the decision to do this as openly and as transparently as possible from the beginning, because I said, if you're going to shut me down, if you're going to shut us down, shut us down fast, because we don't want to tease the industry. We don't want to provide a disservice. But every agency, every federal agency, every state agency with whom I spoke and doing my research, they all wanted the money banked. Right. So that's of all that's business. They're turning away. Right. They wanted a bank yeah. because of the accountability, transparency, taxation, all of that. So I said, we're just going to get into it and we're, we're going to hope that legislation catches up. <laughs> Seven, <laughs> Still hoping. (laughs) So, you know, then we wrote a book. I wrote a book in 2016 to try to get other financial institutions to understand how they can bake cannabis. And somebody says, why would you do that? Why would you help bring uh, other financial institutions into the space? Again, we are in the business of mitigating risk. And if I was the only one in the pool standing out and doing it very openly, they, we needed to put other people on that risk pool with me. So the regulators weren't just on top of us, although they were <laughs> for, for 16 exams. <laughs> and what's the book called? Navigating Safe Harbor. Navigating Safe Harbor. All right. We'll make sure to include a link for that um, in our show notes. So uh, all our listeners, be sure to check that out. Um I want to jump back to the the SPAC deal that Ann just mentioned. Um, You guys just went public through the SPAC deal last month. Can you tell us about that and what that means for the future for Safe Harbor? That's um, pretty exciting and never saw it coming in my career. Not after retirement, right? (laughs) This is the most failed retirement I've ever heard in my whole life. Not only am I going to start a new business, but I'm going to be a public company CEO. It's just, it's amazing how things happen, you know, if you just do them methodically and then suddenly you're in this position and, and what happened was Partner Colorado started to realize this program grew, it it turned into its own monster, and it was too big for the credit union. And I was managing two organizations and I and I said, "I, I can't split my attention and do this justice anymore. So we started looking at how do I we divest partner Colorado of some of this risk so that they're not overly concentrated in cannabis and and can it's a it's a big undertaking in terms of resources. So um, when we did that, we started looking at breaking the company off and perhaps looking for investor funds. So we did about two and a half years of research on this. 
And we interviewed a couple SPACs. We interviewed private equity. We, in, we, we had to do a whole learning curve on that. I would have to say two and a half years ago, I didn't know what a SPAC was. <laughs> but, you know, and I think I, I was afraid of it because I didn't know what it was. And so finally, in this last summer, we met uh, Josh and John and Mac from Luminous, who are our sponsors going through the DSPAC process. And they just very carefully walked us through it, held our hand, and really helped us understand what we were doing, along with our, our attorney and our brokers we had on this side of the house as well. But, you know, we had to do a lot of education. And by moving into the SPAC, we can decouple the entire program out from under Partner Colorado Credit Union and won't be restricted by credit union regulations the way we are at this point in time. So we'll be able to expand this business on a national level, take it into its own company and really scale it. And we'll have, you know, the talent that we're going to bring in or that we have brought in that that absolutely can take it national who are familiar with that, even if I haven't taken a company nationally, although we do have a national footprint, I say we we take money from about 20 different states at this point in time. So we've established that. But now to really go into public realm, you need that kind of talent on your team. So this will allow us to put all that talent on the team and then scale the business and then also go out and look for those other strategies and services to put in place. Um, you know, when we talk about the um, the challenges that that dispensaries and owners and operators are facing, um, do you find a common theme among your um, your accounts, you know, where they or, or is it all just such disparate problems? You know, you're talking about 20 states. Those 20 states are 20 separate like entities with their different regulations. Like, is there a common theme that that you're hearing from your clients when it comes to financial services? I think the the most common two themes that we hear um, first one being access to capital. But that has been opening up in the last year. And that's one of the big things that we're going to do in a strong way is add access to capital to a lot of these companies and make sure that they can get reasonable terms. The other thing is merchant processing, being able to use credit cards. <laughs> in their dispensaries. And that has been a problem right from the beginning in terms of the federal illegality of cannabis and Visa and MasterCard and all the big ones, just staying away from it until there's clarity. But what has sprung up in place of merchant processing are all these closed loop systems and fintech models and wallet models. And we have really taken to those we bank them, we work with them, we move our clients in that direction to reduce the cash risk. And some of these have just been really, really successful in the last seven years. We've watched them grow. And, and I, I, it's interesting because I you know, often wonder if the major credit cards come in to the market, will they get that money back out of those closed loop systems or ACH processes? And I would be one to say, I doubt it. Because if MasterCard or Visa or major credit cards, I should say, coming into the, they're going to come into a high risk business and they're going to price at high risk, four or five percent, six percent, right? Depending on where they decide the risk is. These uh, closed loop systems or ACH providers are doing it for less than two and a half percent of the, the ticket price. So who, what CFO is going to say, yeah, drop the closed loop system, let's do it all on cards. So, you know, there is an opportunity for these FinTech models to really succeed during this time of absence of larger players. 
we talk a lot about on this show about safe banking and, um, you know, is it, is it going to happen? Isn't it going to happen? And I think, you know, we've been teased for so long. What happens once we get a safe banking like act passed? I don't know what will ultimately pass whose version a hybrid or whatever, you know, it, and I know this is an unfair question, but what happens to you guys once, you know, it, 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 this is opened up a little bit more? Well, I, I, I did have the privilege of working with Senator Crapo's office when he was um, working on the Safe Banking Act and really getting into the details and drafting language. So that was uh, really interesting for me when I got to do that. Safe banking, and, and people see this as kind of the salvation for banking in the industry, but it isn't really. Right now, the big risk that uh, boards and officers avoid is that prosecution risk, right? I don't want to be prosecuted. I don't want to be sent to jail. Nobody's been prosecuted at this point in time. It, you just kind of get phased out of the program when, when it's not, not being done correctly. It also might remove the issue where we can be excluded from certain things. Maybe credit cards will come into play at that point in time. Insurers won't exclude us from insurance at that point in time, or federal reserves won't exclude us from using the financial system. So these things may improve. What it doesn't take away is the bank secrecy risk. And that's the risk we fear and work hardest in a cannabis program. So if you take a look at other cash intensive businesses like check cashing, casinos, alcohol, liquor stores, <laughs> smoke shops, they have it, even grocery stores, they have a difficult time getting banking. You can Google them and actually see banking and money service businesses, and they have a difficult time getting banking still, and they're legal. So safe banking isn't going to change the complexity of this industry. And this industry, I would say, is 40% more complex than a money service business. And, and so even after federal legalization, you consider the complexity of the industry, the cash intensive nature, and add one more thing to that, add black market history. You're going to be fighting black market funds and those funds trying to make their way into the system over and over again. And it's the bank's job to make sure those monies don't get into the system. That won't change for, well, how long has alcohol been? How long has alcohol been legal? Since the 1920s, I think, 30. The early 30s. Yeah, yeah. So still have a problem. So it's still going to be complex. So I, I, I think the industry might have a misconception that life will get a lot easier and banking will get less expensive. Well, it may get less expensive. I would agree with competitive pressures there, but it's still going to be a complex uh, industry to bank. Well, they need to rename it then. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it totally is being you know perceived as this this hero piece of legislation though I think that once something like this passes it's gonna it's really gonna change the industry but uh, it it sounds like there's still gonna be you know so many hurdles to jump but uh, I'm interested you know Sunday what let's less about the the current legislation that's being proposed right now I know there's a bunch of different acts that kind of address this stuff. But are there any, you know, changes to the regulatory landscape that you're actually anticipating maybe in the next year or two that that may be beneficial to the cannabis industry or even something farther down the line? Like, are we going to have are we going to 
really have to wait to see any real movement on this or is there there smaller things that could be happening over time i do believe we're going to see incremental change i think everything in dc is incremental right (laughs) you can just chip away at at the issues and add to it and, and and i think that you know bank secrecy itself as a regulation is under consideration here. And there are things in bank secrecy that will make it easier to bank this industry. The, the filing requirements, you know, right now we file nearly a thousand federal reports a month and we process nearly 300 million a month. That's the labor intensive nature of requirements to bank cannabis industry. So yes, I I foresee that maybe when legislation is passed, we're going to start to see bank secrecy regulation uh, changed and the thresholds thresholds changed along with the reporting requirements. So I would say it's inevitable, but not until everybody's comfortable. And you know what that is. It's it's an education process over and over again until people get comfortable with. I remember having a conversation with a DEA officer and (laughs) I said, I I said, is it better banked or unbanked? And, you know, it's better banked, right? Transparency. It's it's a hard question to answer wrong. Well, he looked at me and I was there with a couple of my bankers and he said, and there was a bunch of bankers in the room. And he said, well, you start banking cannabis and then you're going to start banking cocaine money and heroin money. And, and so, you know, it's the gateway banking. It's the gateway drug for banking. That's a first I've ever heard of that in the cannabis industry. We did. We got a big kick out of that. But then he turned right around on stage and said, because of those reports you're filing, we can follow this money all over the country and learn the industry and learn what we need to learn to get comfortable. Right. So it's just a process. Everything's a process, I think. So we we asked this question um, of a lot of our guests, and I feel like I might know the answer, but this is really and this is the first time we're talking about bank secrecy, Nick, right on this podcast ever. So I think, you know, we have a lot of learning to do around that. But if there is there a headline that you your dream headline that you would love to see in The Wall Street Journal tomorrow or a, a piece of the story that is being that is not being told um, I, I mean, in my mind, I'm going to do a big dive on on bank secrecy. But is there something else that that you think from your perspective is just missing from the narrative? You know, you mentioned earlier that people are just kind of waking up to the industry. Right. <laughs> and, and I think that a lot of people have shown up late to the party. <laughs> And I think that, you know, was this another missed opportunity for those of you who were um, too nervous to take that step forward and help move the industry forward in legitimate nature? I think that that would be kind of a headline is, are you too late to benefit from this emerging market? And if you're thinking of retiring. (laughs) I was going to say that first. I was going to say he retires. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, but I will say, you know, we've talked to a lot of people in in other industries who have kind of taken a left turn into into cannabis because we did it as a PR agency, as an investor relations agency. Like these these companies are in need of banking services, communication services, marketing services. So, you know, it's it's really interesting having, um, you know, this this 
set of, you know, intellect come into the industry that wasn't necessarily there before because they're focused on, you know, keeping their doors open, keeping the lights on, keeping the grows growing and, you know, all of that stuff. So I think, you know, there's a huge opportunity for people who are maybe looking to to make a career change. Do you know that the greatest experience in my entire career has been having this front row seat to this emerging market from day one, right? I was right there on top of it. And it's almost an addiction. You can't give it up when you start seeing something grow and grow and grow and just emerge. And, and then you're part of it and you're, you're helping to mitigate it. It's just, it, to me, that was probably the biggest thrill that I have had as being in that front row seat. And, and of course, you know, going public, like, like we're planning on here with this acquisition is you know, taking that baby to the next level and seeing that just grow. And, and, and that's kind of a thrill, but actually seeing the market emerge, it's kind of like, I kept thinking, what was it like in Silicon Valley, you know, or when the internet and all that was coming out, missed all that in my career, but I did not miss cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and, you know, we're very excited about the, your guys' back deal and we'll be following that closely. And, you know, I think it'd be great to have you on again in six months and just, you know, keep talking about how these these regulations and the, the financial services part of the industry is evolving. But um, Sundi, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Um, great having you on. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Made it fun. Thank you. Thanks again to Sundi Seafried and Safe Harbor Financial. To keep up with Safe Harbor in 2022, check them out at www.shfinancial.org and on Twitter at at SH Financial LLC. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Ann or I, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com and send us your feedback and any guest ideas that you'd like us to cover uh, throughout the rest of uh, 2022. Um, and make sure that you subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take. Ish. Cannabis! Cannabis!